0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being, Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: This is Miss Perry Neam, and I'm in the studio with Cyber Sue's and Dr. Train Wheels. Good morning. We are very happy to have some very fabulous guests with us. Um, Suze, do you want to introduce I our do, fabulous guests? I do, We have the wonderful dynamic duo
0: in the studio with us today in real life. So welcome. We've got Dr. Annie Moulden. Annie's a paediatrician and she's worked in the patient safety space for a bloody long time. <laughs> 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 but she still looks gorgeous. And, oh... And we have, um, Annie is going to talk to us, Um, she's been in patient safety since about the 1990s and she's been most recently a member of the Consultative Council Subcommittee and Annie, I'm sure she's going to tell us a bit more about what they do. So Annie, welcome. And we have lawyer and coroner, Catherine Lorenz. Hello Lorenz, it's so great to see you after a long time. Good morning. Yeah, and so we met back in about 2012, I think it was, back at the Children's Hospital when Catherine was legal counsel. Then um, Catherine moved to Monash working with Annie um, with the combination between legal and quality. So Annie and Catherine, they both work in the kind of, I guess you could call it, when things go wrong type of space. And more importantly, how do we make sure that these things don't happen again? Is that fair to say?
2: Yes, I think so. Indeed, it
0: is. Yeah. So, we'll talk to them about how they're tri- they and others, I guess, are trying to change things at all sorts of different levels for um, accident prevention. So, welcome Annie and Catherine.
3: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you. But
4: first, should we get to some brief, brief news?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
1: I am starting off our news of the day with a really fabulous study that's come out of um, the WEHI, which is um, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute over at Monash, and they have done a study looking at using iron transfusions out in Malawi to boost um, iron levels in pregnant women. And a lot of people don't realise that iron deficiency in, in pregnant women has a lot of adverse side effects for both mother and baby um, towards the end of their pregnancy and into the first trimester and year of life for for infants. And the current practice is to give oral iron tablets to women through the course of the pregnancy and particularly in third world countries they're easily accessible they're relatively cheap but no one's really ever asked the question is it actually best practice and so this study is looking at giving a one-off iron iron infusion which is a really simple procedure to women in mostly into their second or third trimester of pregnancy and looking at the outcomes. And what it showed is that actually the level of anemia in pregnant women significantly reduced and and that has ongoing com- um, sort of implications for both maternal and fetal um, health in that first year of life. So it's really interesting to think of, okay, Yes, it's not as cost-effective, but the therefore the cost-effectiveness of outcome for health in terms of those two individuals post that one-off treatment may actually have much bigger implications for the for the mother and the baby going forward. So it, it I, it's such a nice study, and it's it's really in its infancy in terms of this program. It would be really nice to see how they translate that into clinical practice. Um, uh, post this study. I'm
5: wondering, thanks for sharing that study, Perry. It's a good one. Mm. Um, I haven't read it though.
1: <laughs> so that's it right. good. I'll, I'll link it to you. It's thanks.
5: good. Um, did they talk about adverse events? Because I know that in pregnancy there's often a hesitation to do iron mm. infusions mm. because of the risk of allergy and that
1: can be pretty catastrophic. They didn't specifically talk about it hugely. They did screen for um, any adverse effects for people who are doing it and they did it on I think it was about 800 people in the cohort so it's quite a large cohort um particularly when you're thinking about a third world country um and also the other thing i I, not that they mentioned it in the study but something that i've been aware of when i was traveling through papua new guinea a lot of the sort of um subcontinental and third world countries have a lot of um sort of hesitation with blood products and Mm. i think often iron transfusions are considered to be a blood product even though they're not actually a full blood um transfusion so and 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 it's it's a lot of it is religious based so um it it's interesting to me how they got such a big cohort i'd be really interested to ask the researchers about it Mm.
5: yeah nice one are you ready for me to go, Suze? Okay. So mine is, I'm sorry, I've gone COVID content again. I feel We've like... We've got to do it. I that's do it every good. time. Yeah. I'm going to get a name for myself. It still exists. It's going to be around for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> is it 40? Is that it? There was the date? Spanish flu, so... Oh, uh, yeah. okay. Oh, that's nice. The end is in sight, although it's... Oh, <laughs> Um I just wanted to share, there was a nice piece in the Saturday paper yesterday talking about this uh, parliamentary inquiry into long COVID, and I thought it was a nice summary, and um, Essentially, you know, long COVID is this thing that we've sort of heard a bit about over the last three years, but it's pretty poorly defined. Um, We don't really know who gets it or why or how many people get it or really much about it at all, because it's presentations are very variable, like COVID itself. Um, And the results of this inquiry basically confirmed... All of that. That we really don't know very much about it. Mm. But the thing that was a big takeaway, I think, well, I guess I'll just say what, I'll talk about how we define long COVID first. Um, Long COVID is is defined as any new symptoms that arise within three months of a COVID infection that last more than two months. Uh, So really that's very broad. And the symptoms can be anything from breathlessness, coughing, chest pain, to visual disturbances, abdominal pain, muscle pain, skin rashes. You know, the presentations are all over the place. Um, But it is a real thing. And even though we don't know much about it, we can't really define it very well. We can't predict who's going to get it or how many people get it. We do know it exists and we do know it's going to be a big problem into the future. Mm -hmm. And the big takeaway for me from this inquiry was that prevention is key because one thing we do know about it is... Uh, you know, one of the sure bets that increases your risk of getting long COVID is getting COVID. True. Exactly.
1: It's pretty hard to get long COVID without that. Exactly.
5: (laughs) So as you said, CyberSUSE, it's, you know, it's still with us. We can't can't let our guard down fully yet. And the recommendations of the inquiry included things like improving air quality in indoor areas and Mm. always still reminding people to get vaccinated. Mm. Actually reminds me, I think I'm due for my... Was Well, it fifth or something—I haven't had my yeah, yeah, it's quite—it's quite weird. I just got my international
0: vaccination thing to go overseas mm. on next week, and I realized I have not had a booster since tw- November twenty twenty one. See, it's just sort of I, I fallen can't off the radar, that, hasn't yeah. it? And I mean, I've had COVID twice since then, so I guess <laughs> it lets me off the hook. But yeah, I mean, you're right—we've just kind of dropped the ball slightly, totally, in some, in some ways.
5: I think yeah. part of the difficulty is that you know eligibility for boosters has been not clearly communicated it changes yes. all the time and that makes it confusing yeah. and there's that thing of you know if you've had a COVID infection you've got to wait six months till da 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 so look yeah it isn't it's no one's fault really yeah but just a reminder too if you haven't had if you're eligible for a booster and you haven't had one please do get one because reinfection seems to increase your risk of um, developing long COVID too.
3: Mm-hmm. And the other thing too is um, the flu season is upon us yes. it's early and probably nasty. So and contrary to what was said last year, yeah. this year you can have COVID and flu vaccines at the same time. at the same time. Oh, yeah. One in each EHR, it's yes. really special. Oh, the kids yeah. will it's love that. It's a really that. lovely <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah.
1: I had my flu shot the other day, but I personally have found it really um, challenging and I'm going to... Put this out there to those who have struggled because I actually can't have Pfizer because oh. I was one of the lucky few to get myocarditis from it. Oh, lucky you! I know. Look at me go. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> um, but I can have AstraZeneca, but I found it really hard to actually access oh. a fourth or fifth dose of AstraZeneca because less people are using it, and the the one the combined shots of the the one that they're approved for is Pfizer and flu shot together. So if you're oh. somebody who can't have um, Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine because of those reasons you can't have your flu shot with your COVID booster because of the fact that it's not TGA approved. See this is
5: just another little complicated, mm, complicated. factor that I think yeah. is mm. making it harder for people to it's not just a simple thing
1: yeah you can't just yeah. go out and get it. But <laughs> if you're looking for non-Pfizer um, or Moderna vaccines there are places listed on the Australian government website as to where you can access AstraZeneca or um, alternative options. COVID. It be if you're
0: Because
5: sure ask your gp totally
0: yeah
1: yeah Yeah. oh thanks
5: for that perry that's a good little Mm. reminder yes so that's it covid try to keep your windows open get your vaccines if you can get an air purifier that'd be nice yes well exactly
0: right (laughs) you don't know if you want to keep your windows open as it gets cool. it is chilly now isn't it (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's a bit
4: cold this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: Annie Malden, good morning. Good morning. So as I mentioned before, Annie's a paediatrician, um, and Annie works in private practice and at the Children's, Indeed. and has worked in patient safety for a long time. And in fact, Annie was ordered, awarded. Oh, stop it!
3: <laughs> do not, do, do not. not.
0: I won't. So everyone, do not listen to the fact that Annie was awarded an Order of Australia.
5: <laughs> I blocked my ears. I don't yeah, know good. what you're
0: cheering good, for.
5: Good. We, we had a bit of black air
0: then. I knew I shouldn't have come on today.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I mean that's absolute credit to you, Annie. That's for your work in the patient. Safety space um, that you got that award. Mm. Nice to be recognised. And I was reading yesterday a little extract about you from your website, from the website for your school.
3: Royton.
0: No. Oh, I know. So now it's full exposure. Royton Girls' School. And Annie said. Ryton. Oh, right. show <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an Australian. Russian and not Ryton. <laughs> Ryton. Right. And Annie said this Being excited by what you do is critical to being successful. I define success by having a sense of engagement, excitement, and achievement of a goal no matter its size. And I think that's so true, Annie. And being excited about what you do, like who could make patient safety exciting? You have done it.
3: Yeah. Well, it actually wasn't a thing. It was... No. So I often say to the more junior doctors, you know, if anyone had said to me I was going to have a career in patient safety, they would have said, patient what? Yes. So it didn't really exist. And... um, it's been an interesting sort of 30 years since I started working in this space, um, which was actually uh, in the early 90s when there was a huge study done in down in New York where they looked through medical records um, retrospectively for what they called adverse events mm. which you talked about before um, and that is they went back and looked retrospectively for things that had happened that weren't as a result of the disease process they were due to the healthcare care itself and they divided it into obviously preventable and unpreventable although that is a very interesting shifting line as who decides what's actually preventable or not but in the the, the short story was that they decided that probably about a hundred thousand Americans were dying every year as a result of medical error. Wow. Wow. Mm, yeah. And that was in the early 90s. And um, of course, we said, well, that's America and mm-hmm. we live, we live <laughs> yeah. in Australia and our health system is completely different. And then about two years later, there was a big study done in Royal North Shore and that showed exactly the same. So about 16 or 17% of hospital admitted patients um, had harm inflicted as a result of their health care. And obviously, some of those things were side effects of medications and so forth, where the benefit of treatment outweighed the side effect mm-hmm. but there were many other areas where in fact there was outright latent harm happening and I guess probably the the classic easy one to discuss is medication error mm-hmm. um, and I think that we know that there's been a huge progress in this over the last 30 years it's much much safer now than it was but things such as infusions of potassium which are not mm-hmm. great for your heart because hearts stop beating when you put a bit of potassium into the blood system and repeatedly across the world, people were being given potassium infusions instead of um, sodium chloride because they looked exactly the same. They were, um, they were stored in the same syringe. They used to lie next to each other. So when people were making up infusions, they would, they would regularly make up a potassium infusion. And mm. people were dying for years before people actually started to think maybe we'll change the colour yeah. and then maybe we'll yeah. store it somewhere separately. And so it's been a really interesting journey. Things are a lot safer, but there's still a long way to go.
0: Oh, I mean, it's it's just staggering to think that people probably weren't aware of the fact that going to hospital and you're at risk of having harm before you come out. Um, Hundred yeah. percent. If you're an
3: intensive care patient, it was about fifty percent.
5: Wow. I, this is sort of just by the by, but as a junior doctor, I feel, you know, when I went through medical school, you you learn all these things, and you think, oh yeah, you know, medicine, we know what we're doing. You know, it's all pretty under control. We've been doing this forever. But as I learn more and more, it sort of becomes clear that this is all really quite new, Mm -hmm. isn't it? And we're Mm -hmm. sort of figuring things out as we go along and things like let's have different coloured tubes and store them in a different place. It seems so straightforward and simple, but someone had to think to do that Mm -hmm. and we haven't been doing this for long enough for someone to have thought of that yet so yeah, it's then. fantastic that you know roles like yours exist and you're thinking about that stuff
1: i always thought it was really interesting so as a physio when we go through our training I, my partner's a doctor and so comparing our training processes was really interesting and for physios we do things called oskies, which the med guys do as well but we get hands-on experience as part of our degree whereas a lot of the medical students get to go in and observe but they're not actually interacting with patients on a care basis and I always thought it was really poignant that for us we have what's called a safety fail in our OSCEs. So if you do anything that is remotely unsafe, including getting a patient out of bed in socks, mm. like something as simple mm. as that, you automatically fail your station. And my partner was like, oh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? And I was like, no, because that's mm. when they fall over and break a hip. And that, it's simple things like that that can make a massive difference to the outcome of someone's stay. And it, it's wild to me that our doctors aren't actually – responsible for going in and doing some of those hands-on basic skills in a hospital... As part of their training, I think we get
5: stuck with our head in the in the sort of blood test results and mm-hmm. the you know yeah. interpreting this heart sound and that thing. We mm-hmm. forget about these practical. To- totally, my
1: my my personal opinion, but I really think that junior doctors should go and spend like a couple of weeks with nurses on the wards and mm. just see what that and actually be practical and go and you know commode a patient, go and have a shower, see what it's actually like mm. because you'd be amazing to see the number of small little changes in terms of safety if doctors were aware of the day-to-day of running a hospital with patients.
0: And Annie, I guess I guess one thing I wonder out of that is wh- what has the impact been that you've observed on doctors or healthcare professionals? Like, is it distressing to them when accidents happen or when something goes wrong? Because at the end of the day, everyone's there to do the right thing, right? Oh, yeah, and, and
3: absolutely. I think that that's one of the things that's been really important in terms of the messaging is that when something goes wrong and... We're, we're looking into you know, how it happened and why it happened. It's very important that it's not about who mm. uh, because we always make the assumption that if it's happened to one clinician, uh, it'll happen to another. And so it's really important to try and avoid the who and just look at the what and the how mm. so that you could then move forward because the impact on, on clinical staff when something goes wrong is profound. Absolutely. And I've seen very senior, experienced consultants who've been involved in adverse events not work for periods of... Weeks, months at mm. a time, mm. so that's absolutely huge. I, I, I have a question for you, Annie. Particularly with um, COVID and
1: the the setup of the speed of the way that we transitioned into COVID care and COVID wards and things like that. Have you started seeing any data or things coming out in terms of
3: how that was managed and and risks and things? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. I guess I was involved. I was working. Um, with Safer Care Victoria during that time and we obviously pivoted across to doing mainly COVID work for quite some time. And what was really interesting is quite early on we were able to have agreement that parents would not be seen as being visitors. You'll remember mm. that there were very strict visitor guidelines yep. and that parents needed to be with their child to provide care. And, we, and that was done quite quickly. But what didn't happen at the other end of the spectrum was that, in fact, the frailed elderly mm. did not get the same exemptions. And what we've heard since then is that there are many, many elderly patients in hospital who they couldn't feed themselves, they couldn't get to yeah. the toilet, they fell all of those things that wouldn't have happened if they'd actually had a carer in there. But because they are only allowed, I think it was at one stage, two hours a day. Yeah. So I think that there were a whole lot of things like that that actually happened uh, that was, you know, quite profound. Mm. We were fortunate in PEDS in that that was accepted quite early on and for, yeah. you know, in patients in intensive care and stuff, there could actually be two parents and two car- or two carers. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a lot we learned. Um, don't start me on the playgrounds. That mm. would be... Something I should never talk about. Sorry,
5: I had my microphone off. The day the playground's open was like (laughs) V-Day. It was
0: indeed.
5: I'm not even a parent
0: and I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Catherine, I mean, Annie, I think that makes me wonder about the, like the types of patient safety things that we're talking about seem a little bit different to the potassium that you were talking about before. Has there been a shift in the types of accidents and harm that we're seeing now compared to when you first started out?
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, many of the structural things that we could change to make it, Harder to do the wrong thing or easier to do the right thing. So storage of medicines is a very good example of that. Mm-hmm. A lot of those things have actually now been done, and I think now what we see are probably two or three main themes. One is around sort of the diagnostic difficulties, and and you know at the end of the day, um, that is still something that's very difficult for clinicians, mm-hmm. and how do we support them better in doing that? We've talked a bit about psychological harm, and that's something that we didn't really reflect very much on but I think particularly in the paediatric space you know the psychological harm of the treatments that we give children are very considerable and I think there's been a lot of work done but I think we've got much more work to do and then the final thing is that we've got a theme at the moment and there's been quite a bit of publicity in the media about this where parents have clearly stated and Catherine's got experience of this uh, where parents have clearly stated that they knew that their child was getting sicker and that they couldn't Um, Raise those concerns or have those concerns heard by the clinical staff looking after their children. And I think that the big push at the moment that we're working on is really making sure that parents and carers are seen as an integral part of the clinical care team, that Mm. they know their children intimately, they might not know what the diagnosis is they don't need to and so trying to get better parent escalation processes for when children are deteriorating and making sure that parents can actually actively reach out and be heard uh, is is I think something that's going to be very important moving forward it's not that they're not that it doesn't happen now but it needs to happen much more easily and much more comprehensively than it does.
0: Mm. and it's so I I really can see that because I mean obviously it's the parent that really knows the nuances and patterns of child's behavior and the small changes that a healthcare professional can never pick up on and I I wonder I guess maybe from my experience in the past as well is has there been a hesitancy from healthcare professionals to listen to parents and has there been a shift in that do you think?
3: So I think in paediatrics I would always say you know paediatrics 101 we are Taught very early on that parents know their children well yeah. and always listen to them, and and uh, you know if you don't, uh, don't listen to parents, uh, you you know you're really missing an opportunity. So I think that from a from a structural point of view, I think we've always said that parents are part of the clinical team, but I'm not sure mm. that we've actually really embraced it in a in a way that is completely um, holistic. But also, I, I worry. You know, it's all very well for those parents who feel able to speak up. But actually, for all of us who've been patients in hospital, it's very disempowering. And, you know, we've got plenty of parents who work with us at the hospital who are healthcare professionals. And they themselves have had great difficulty escalating their concerns. So we have to make it much easier at the moment we're trialling a new process using an orange card, for example. But we have to make it easier that we don't rely on parents feeling confident that they can raise concerns because they don't want to put the clinical team off they don't want they don't want to get offside, and so they often will say not, nothing and that's for the people who are comfortable mm-hmm. doing it but for the many parents who um, who don't have that level of confidence we have got to make it much much easier to actually hear what they're saying.
1: Can I ask, Annie, in terms of, um, I guess, diagnosis with with parents, has the introduction of technology through your career made it easier for people to explain what they're seeing in the paediatric population? I'm thinking from my personal point of view with the little one. uh, We've got photos. We've got video. We can show clinicians on a day-to-day basis changes in things. Has that made a difference in terms of outcomes for safety, in terms of communicating
3: when, when a
1: parent doesn't have a healthcare background? That's
3: a very good question. I don't know the answer oh. to that. I don't. Yeah. I don't know that we. I don't know that we yet really know that. I mean, look. Certainly, the introduction of technology has made an enormous difference. Mm. I think it's helpful, but I think sometimes it's also incredibly confusing.
0: Yeah, mm. I can imagine that. Though, like you, if, if you've got a child who has a seizure at home, for example, being able to film that and show that to your yeah. doctor has to be helpful. I was
1: I was just thinking because we we had in our mothers group recently there's a device out there on the market called the Owlet, which oh. is a uh, yeah. Um, and it's it's effectively a, an oxim an oxygen monitor for a
3: baby. And oh, it's, is it one in the sock? Yeah, it's a stupid sock thing. I know, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I told my patient you take that sock off. Yeah, yeah it's a disaster. <laughs> and
1: but the thing was that this patient particularly didn't have she had no background in medicine. She didn't actually know what a pulse oximeter did or what the normal numbers would be for an infant and so was completely blind panicked about the fact that it had moved off the pulse point and her oxygen reading was below 90 and she thought her baby was dying and had mm. taken them into hospital. It's very common. And, and the reality was it was, no, the device was just not positioned correctly. It's very common. Yeah. yeah. With, with that device in particular, it's a yeah. real it's a real problem.
5: I think for things like work of breathing, having video evidence, very helpful for clinicians if, you know, the baby's kind of perked up a bit on the way to the emergency department, which often happens, but 15 minutes ago they were, <laughs> yeah, and exactly. you've got a video of that, can be very helpful. But as you said, the data's probably not there yet. We don't have the evidence mm. yet.
0: Mm. Um, now, Annie, I have another question for you. Speaking about data, I mean, you're talking about that data from um, the early uh, 1990s with 100,000...
3: 000... So that was in America, yeah. yes. So their prediction was 100,000 lives were being lost from mm. medical error. And there was a huge campaign that some people would be aware of through the IHI, which was 100,000 Lives, and that's what it was called. And yeah. they've worked very, very hard to actually move with a whole lot of different strategies to reduce harm.
0: And where are we at now? Do do you have an idea of numbers no, or No, I think yeah.
3: that I think that we would all everyone would agree that the high level harm um has very, very significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we're now looking at, as I said, is things that are no less important um but things like psychological yeah. harm and so forth are things that are going to be ongoing. And so hard to quantify as it, well, isn't it? Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, and I think, you know, I I was wondering before about, you know, you've worked in the pediatric space um, by and large, is where adult medicine can learn from pediatrics. And I think you raised such an important point about being there with the frail Mm -hmm. elderly and being there, being present, and also being present with adults. Adults are scared when they go into surgery, and adults are scared in hospital. And that, that disempowerment that you're talking about is feeling confident to be a, the value of the family unit as well yeah. is something I can imagine adults can learn from paediatrics.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, the, the adult system um, hasn't, um, this is going to sound very critical and it's not meant to, but I think that, you know, in paediatrics we, we absolutely need the parents mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I think when adult patients are in hospital, um, carers and family members are seen as being kind of um, additional support mm-hmm. rather than being integral. Absolutely.
1: Which Hmm. seems so strange to me because if you're unwell enough to be in hospital, be it even for a routine procedure, you're not taking in all the information that's being provided to you by carers and clinicians. So why would we not have someone whose whole role is in that particular moment to take in that information and store it for you later so that you're not actually in, in, regarded yeah. as being – like if you're on pain yeah, medication absolutely. and things, you're not processing information the same way. And you're stressed. Yeah, you're I mean if you can't yeah. drive a car on certain yeah, medication, true. why are you asked to make medical decisions for yourself? That's so true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, it's
3: incredibly helpful to have someone – taking notes. It totally is. It's it's a really important thing. I think that we've learned a lot of those things through the pandemic Mm. um, about the importance of of, of those sorts of things. So there's been good that's come. There mm. has.
0: Now, Annie, the, you've mentioned before about the
3: consultative council. Consultative council.
0: <laughs> Gosh, my English is bad, isn't it? Right Can... in
3: and consultative. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can you tell us a bit more about that, so, and yes, so including how to pronounce it properly?
3: Yes, so, <laughs> so we just call it COPM because mm. then you don't have to say it. It's a Consultative Council for Obstetric and Paediatric Morbidity and Mortality and it's a, a ministerial advisory council. I'm not on the full council. I'm just on the paediatric. Pediatric well, or the child and adolescent, it's called subcommittee. Um, but one of our roles is to review um, deaths, and um, actually, I mean, there's an amazing team that work in the council that actually look at every single pediatric death every year. Wow. Um, and then we on the subcommittee um, look at a subset of those. But again, very much focused on um, looking at preventable factors. Um, and I think it's fair to say that over the last few years, the overwhelming Um, major impact on um, health outcomes for the children of Victoria is vulnerability. So children who are vulnerable, be it geographic, socioeconomic, ethnicity, um, are absolutely over... You know, they're so... um, Overrepresented in uh, in child deaths, and it does, be it SIDS, be it uh, medical conditions, access to medications, and so forth. Uh, so that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of improving that space. Interesting in terms of um, the treaty. Um, presentation that um, the government made recently in terms of focusing on Indigenous health outcomes. But there are children who are vulnerable for a whole host of reasons and their outcomes are are significantly worse in all domains. Uh, The other thing that's interesting is that, and Catherine might want to comment on this, is Coroner Kane came out recently looking at the suicide numbers. Mm. And, um, you know, it was very obvious that the suicide numbers were going to increase but that there would be a likely lag time and that's exactly what's happened. Mm. Um, there's been a massive rise in um, mental health um, impact of the pandemic and the lockdowns particularly on the 11 to 17 year olds and then into the young adult space they've been the most profoundly affected and uh, so there's um, there's no doubt about that but we look at um, things such as drownings and, and all sorts of other very tragic um, cases but predominantly about looking at what are the things that could be done uh, that could actually Um, improve the outcomes and so it's always about looking back and that's what we owe patients in particular those who who have died is what what can we learn what Mm. can we change for the future Mm. Um, it's incredible I think when we've talked to families after children have had things that have happened to them how extraordinarily generous they are and they overwhelmingly say we just don't want this to happen to Mm. anyone else again Mm. and I think that um, that's what we try to do in the consultative Council is is look to preventable factors.
5: Mm. We're talking about some heavy content here, so I just want to remind listeners if this has brought up anything difficult for you, remember that there's help available. Lifeline are available all the time on thirteen eleven fourteen, and Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636.
4: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: Um, You're in the studio with Cyber Sue, Miss Perineum, Trainer Wheels and Dr. Annie Molden and coroner Catherine Lorenz, our two wonderful guests. So um, very distinguished. I know. I know. We are very honoured today, aren't we? Honoured to be in in the order of Australia. Don't worry. (laughs) Just saying. Uh, So... Catherine Lorenz um, joined the Coroner's Court in December 2020 and that was after a quite interesting career with um, commercial litigation, sounds very non-Health-like, and then Health as Executive Director at the Children's Hospital and then Monash. So um, also, as I understand it, Catherine, you were the Chief Executive at the Victorian Bar during the beginning of the COVID pandemic outbreak. Yes, for my sins. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to to keep them on board, so that must have been an interesting time for you. Yes, certainly was. Yeah, well, triple R is a lot easier in comparison. So (laughs) welcome to the show this morning, and welcome Your Honour Coroner Catherine Lorenz to use your good and formal title. Thank you, Susan. Yes. So I guess the first thing we should really launch into, because I'm interested to know this, what actually is a coroner? Like, what
2: does a coroner do? So a coroner is uh, appointed... Um, by the Attorney-General and there are 13 coroners in Victoria at the moment and we investigate deaths and fires uh, and not all deaths. We investigate those deaths that fall under the category of reportable deaths in Victoria and those categories include all accidents, all what we call unexpected deaths and deaths uh, following medical procedures which were unexpected, so those where the doctor... Expected the patient to survive and they didn't survive. Uh, We investigate all deaths in custody and all deaths of persons in the care of the state. So that means under the order of the secretary or uh, children, for example, who might be in foster care and they're under an order of the secretary of the Department of Family and. Families and fairness at the moment. So as you,
0: as that kind of ties into what Annie was just saying just now about, I guess our vulnerable populations and
2: yes. S- Seeking to understand and support and protect that population. That's right. So we, uh, similar to patient safety, we look at the, one of the main aims of the coroner's court is to look at those deaths that might be preventable, and we make recommendations to agencies, government bodies, etc. That can include hospitals or government departments about um, matters that might be preventable. We're in no-blame jurisdiction, so um, don't come to the coroner's court expecting compensation for example we don't send people to prison but we do um, can refer matters to um, uh, public prosecutions if we think an indictable crime has been committed so that could be for example a homicide in some cases. In terms of um,
1: so for example there's been in the news um, quite a lot about Uh, domestic situations where a parent has um, impacted a child's life and and those kinds of instances. What things have you seen over your career in terms of how those cases are handled in terms of either reporting or non-reporting? Because I'm sure in in your earlier years there was minimal reporting of of, um, domestic abuse to children from parents.
2: Well, well, in my current role, um, unlike uh, Annie's role, we only see the very end... Of the system, so we only see uh, domestic violence situations that result in death. We don't see in my in the coroner's court, um, you know, uh, domestic violence that doesn't result in death. So I can't mm. comment on those. Um, I can say there's certainly in the um, ten years or so that I've worked in health or at the coroner's court, there has been certainly an increase in uh, knowledge by health professionals. Uh, police social workers teachers etc about signs to look for and there you know there's a greater community awareness about what what's occurring and
1: pathways for reporting pathways for
2: reporting yeah. mandatory reporting has tightened up in the time that I've been there so uh, working with children checks for example only mm. came in what ten years ago something yeah. like that so there has been an enormous um, emphasis and effort put in at the community level and government le- level at those kinds of issues which is pleasing to see mm. hasn't stopped it entirely mm. unfortunately but it has certainly improved
0: and what sort of numbers of you know what sort of numbers of people are you seeing
2: that come through the coroner's court so um, I think I'm could get my numbers wrong here and I'm sure there'll be some viewers. Don't worry, we're not on air. No, they can. I'm sure I can be corrected, but I think it's either 30 or 40,000 deaths occur in Victoria every year for various reasons. Mm. Of those, about 7,000 fall into the categories of deaths that must be reported to the coroner. So we look at 7,000 deaths a year. This is in Australia or in Victoria? This is in Victoria. Wow. So of that 7,000 approximately 37 or 38% after our investigations and autopsy, for example, the medical tests that are done on the person's body, um, it will be determined that probably almost 40% are natural cause deaths. Mm-hmm. So they tend to be investigated quite quickly and they close and the family is satisfied that their loved one who might have fallen at home for example with no previous medical condition the doctor doesn't know the treating doctor for example a GP may not I've been aware of any condition but it turns out for example there was a pulmonary embolism or some underlying heart condition so that that's that's the vast majority mm-hmm. of what we look at then there's another cohort of people who actually have accidents and they can be very minor for example a fractured neck of femur or uh, we talked about hips before Mm -hmm. uh, broken hip results in a fall and Mm -hmm. then the person if they're elderly will deteriorate in hospital and sadly uh, sometimes pass away weeks later as a result of causes as a result of that fall so again once we've determined that there's, you know, nothing further to investigate. The person was cared for quite well and there's nothing, nothing to be concerned at, at a community level, those cases close as well. And so then we concentrate on the cases that are more troubling to us. They will be the suicides, for example. They might be um, homicides where a, um, a, a perpetrator hasn't been arrested and there's been no criminal justice response for whatever reason. We have missing persons and we have accidents from misadventure, drownings. We actually look at um, very similar things to what Copham looks at in children, Mm -hmm. for example, and uh, we perform a different function but we often will refer to and speak with other agencies about the investigations they've done to ensure that the investigations have been thorough and we don't repeat the investigation if we're satisfied that the causes have been determined and we understand what occurred.
1: In terms of people who um, pass away in hospital or on their way to hospital, is there a a series of sort of checklists of who will get referred to your Doorstep in terms of um, things like autopsy and following on. If there's an elderly patient who dies of natural causes, what determines that they need a coroner's review versus not?
2: So, so all deaths that fall under the categories of reportability will be reported to the coroner. Mm-hmm. Then that the body will come to the coronial um, to the coroner's court to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, who mm-hmm. are co-located with the coroner's court. And from there, on the advice of a forensic qualified forensic pathologist, the coroner will determine whether an autopsy is required or um, a phys- just a physical examination of the body. All bodies that are, come to the coroner's court will be um, have a CAT scan, so that can provide quite a lot of information to the forensic pathologist and the coroner about what's going on in that person's body, including pathologies that might be uh, there, for example, cancers, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. They can find fractures, all of those kinds of things. So from there, it, the coroner will determine with in consultation with the family uh, about whether an autopsy is required. Um, and the autopsy is really to determine one of the things that are necessary under the coroner's act to determine which is the core medical cause of death mm-hmm. so from there once we've determined the medical cause of death we determine whether or not what the circumstances of that person's death are and that that the length of that investigation and the extent of that investigation really depends on the circumstances so if it's a missing person, for example, or something that might be a homicide, then there will be a very intensive investigation. If, like I said, it's something that um, is explained by the immediate circumstances uh, and witness statements obtained by the police, then the investigation can be relatively short and the case will be closed without further ado in a small number of cases uh, people will your viewers will know about inquests in a small number of cases an inquest is required an inquest is a public hearing where evidence is called publicly and um, we look at listen to all the witnesses and look at all the evidence before the court and then we make our findings after the inquest Mm -hmm. we tend not to do those in very many cases because they are very long drawn out Legal processes that we like to avoid, if we can find mm. answers in a in an easier way. Mm. And you, you mentioned
0: before, um, uh, and I, I just want, could you mind just clarifying a bit more? What's the difference between the coroner's role and the, I guess, the criminal aspect of a death? And what powers in the coroner's court do you have?
2: Yes, so th- there is quite a lot of overlap in in yeah. some of the things that we do. So we investigate all homicides, but. Where um, the police have, for example, um, are conducting a criminal investigation alongside the death investigation, we will often, if you like, take a back seat while they continue their criminal investigation. We still do our autopsies, determine the cause of death, release the body to the family. Uh, The police will investigate. They will uh, do their thing, make recommendations to the um, Office of Public Prosecutions a criminal trial may take place. While this is going on, our file stays open. Um, we, and then after after the criminal trial has taken place, let's say for example, there's been a conviction, the perpetrator is sent to prison. We will then look at whether or not further coronial investigation should take place. An example might be for uh, if the, if it was a child death or a domestic violence death. Was that family known to agencies and were there any prevention opportunities involving that family that that, that should be more closely looked at? So that occurs uh, reasonably often in those sorts of cases. Very
0: stressful. must be very stressful. Mm.
1: Yeah. We've heard a little bit in the news in the last few months about the um, role of the coroner's court in working with prison systems, particularly in youth prisons. Can you speak to how you work with that kind of system in terms of making recommendations for criminal justice?
2: So all deaths in custody are reported to the coroner and all deaths in custody uh, require a mandatory inquest. Mm. So unless the the cause of death is natural. Uh, So people get old and get cancers in prison and sometimes they die. Where the death is not natural, for example, there are suicides or um, unexpected deaths that aren't explained. We have a full inquest where we... um We look at, again, the agencies that were involved. They might be health agencies, hospitals, for example, or uh, the prison system itself, private prisons or public prisons. And, again, we can make recommendations about the care that was provided to that prison, again, with an eye on the vulnerability of that um, subsection of our community who uh, essentially are imprisoned and have have had their rights taken away to a greater extent than the rest of the population. Catherine, do you ever get it wrong? (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Is that an unfair question?
2: (laughs) No, uh, not at all. Uh, Sometimes we do get it wrong and uh, I, I get things wrong and where that occurs... Uh, people are very um, forthright in letting us know often, which is a good thing. And uh, we can reopen an, an investigation on uh, new information. Uh, and, of course, parties have various rights of appeal to the Supreme Court um, about various things that we do under the Act. So, so, that for example, if we decide... If somebody requests an inquest and we decide... We don't think it's appropriate to have an inquest. They can appeal that. Mm. Um, they can we decide in the event of a dispute who the body should be released to. Uh, again, that they, they that can be um, appealed to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides whether we get it right or wrong. So sometimes we're just like any other professional, doctors, nurses, anybody else, we exercise our judgment as best as we can with the information that is known to us at the time and sometimes the information we're given isn't perfect and sometimes in weighing up all the information we have, we make might make a decision that others might not have made.
5: Your line of work sounds very stressful but very rewarding in its own way but I'm wondering how what sort of toll it takes on you. Mm. Dealing with death all day every day, it's not a cheery subject. Mm.
2: No. And,
0: and
5: traumatic deaths
0: as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. Mm.
2: No, it it does take a toll on uh, staff and coroners at the court and those at um, Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. It's really important that people working in those types of roles uh, take care of themselves. That might include, for example, um, not reading too much material in one burst. Mm -hmm. It might mean going for a walk in the middle of the day, it might mean not working at night. So all of those work habits I used to have in my other roles of just working all the time, I find that I'm not able to do that as a coroner because the work is relentlessly the same thing.
3: Can I just add in there too, I think the other thing that's really important um, when we're looking at cases at the consultative council, so similar to you Catherine, is that By focusing on the preventability Mm -hmm. and the lessons Mm -hmm. that can be learned, I think um, then. It gives hope to that situation it means that actually as I said earlier there's there's respect for and a commitment to learn from the things that have have not gone as well as they should have Mm -hmm. and could have Uh, and I and I find that when we have some of our meetings when we look at some of the traumatic tests and so forth it's um, you know the accidents and stuff those meetings are often very difficult and we often get to the end of the meeting and and all of us sitting around who've reviewed the cases sort of look at each other but I think that Overwhelmingly, if you if you learn lessons and make sure that the same things don't keep happening again, then that gives a sense of optimism to me. And I also, I think it makes it move from the the pessimism or of the the darkness, if mm. you like, of what we're doing, mm. into a space of actually, this is really important to do. Um, so, I think that's for me. That's one of the things that I always think about afterwards, particularly after a difficult meeting. Um, that the, the reason, there's a reason to do this and there's a really important reason why we have to continue to do it and it's really respect for the, the person who's passed in particular.
1: And making ourselves better, right? I mean, as healthcare professionals and, and in all of those spaces, we want to improve our practices and we want to make sure that we're giving patients best care and hindsight, we all know, is 2020 most of the time. So if we can use that and, and improve and continue to improve medical practices in all walks of life, that's, that's a really good place to come from
0: i think absolutely um so Catherine, we're going to come back in a moment and ask you about your bugbears and things some of the key lessons that you've observed we're going to go to
4: some announcements we're back with you in a moment you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform
0: Catherine and Annie, what's your kind of take-home patient safety messages that you think we can learn from?
4: Uh,
2: I would say that the, the things that trouble me are the repeated accidents that are preventable, such as drownings. Um, I would encourage people to go out and get swimming lessons, um, including people who've newly arrived to Australia who may not have had the opportunity previously, um, people with small children teaching about water safety, Uh, You'll hear us occasionally talk about things like button batteries. Button batteries are in every single toy from what I can work out as a grandparent. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Annie, you might have some others, but I suspect that they're similar similar patient safety issues.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, drownings, um, I heard a very good presentation recently from Life Saving Victoria and I think that the, the more that's done to make some water spaces safer, other water spaces seem to become more perilous. So I think absolutely drownings and button batteries um, has been a, a huge issue. Yeah.
2: And the one that we know about, and we've known about it for decades, road accidents, speed, uh, drugs, alcohol, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. Catherine and Annie, thanks for having, having coming on the show. It's been amazing. Until next week, over and out from Radiotherapy. Hi.